just to mention at the outset that um, <coughs> we will not be having a shear uh, next Monday. Next Monday will be, be Hanukkah. People have their uh, commitments. And uh, <coughs> so although learning Torah is permitted over Hanukkah, in, in many circles uh, even encouraged, but uh, our shear will continue Mitz Hashem in two weeks' time. And in fact, <coughs> as we are uh, this close to Hanukkah, I wanted to direct our remarks this evening to Hanukkah itself. And uh, as we often do, we begin with a matter of halacha or minhag that pertains to the Chag, and then we'll move on to uh, more uh, thematic uh, material uh, in the, the second part of the Shia. <coughs> the topic that I wanted to speak about this evening is the issue of lighting a menorah in Shul. And as we know, of course, at the center of Hanukkah mitzvah-wise is the lighting of the menorah, Hadlokas Haner, and the place in which we light the menorah is the house. Nevertheless, there is a minhag which dates back to antiquity. I'm not sure exactly when it began. It's not mentioned in the Gemara. So we assume that it's uh, from sometime after the Gemara. It's already discussed in the Rishonim. And that is of lighting the menorah in Shul. And this is, as we, as we mentioned, <coughs> it's discussed in the Rishonim and also codified in the Shulchan Aruch. And yet there is much to discuss with regards to this minhag. After all, uh, we ask a simple question. What is its goal? What is the, what is the point of this, uh, of lighting? And indeed, there are some people who suggest that it is to be motzi, those in shul, presumably those in shul who will not be uh, lighting by themselves, <coughs> and therefore we light for them in shul. The problem is, it is actually impossible for anyone in shul to fulfill their obligation with the lighting in shul. And the reason is very simple. The basic mitzvah of Hanukkah lights is as recorded in the Gemara and Shulchan Aruch, or Gemara, Ner Ish Ubeso. That is to say, the components that you need are a light and a house. The mitzvah can only be fulfilled in what is considered to be the person's house. Now, it is true that <coughs> it doesn't have to be a house that they own or a house that they, that they live in permanently. If you're staying with someone for Hanukkah or for that night, so then for that night, their house is your house. Quite so. But at the very least, it needs to be your dom domicile for that night. Which brings us back to Shul, whereby people come to Shul, but no one sleeps in Shul. Or perhaps, to put that more realistically, no one should be sleeping in Shul. And uh, therefore, you know, for whom is the lighting? Well, the answer that's given by summary shown him is that indeed the original minhag was actually <coughs> for the benefit of those who did live in Shul. Uh, it's known, certainly this is true from the times of the Gemara, that uh, there were people who were either uh, wayfarers 
or perhaps they Stam had nowhere to live and uh, they would actually live in Shul, whether they lived in the Shul itself or adjacent to the Shul, but they certainly, um, the Shul was their home and therefore uh, the lighting was actually motzi them the mitzvah. In fact, <coughs> this actually relates to a, a parallel discussion which is traced back to the Gemara, namely making Kiddush in Shul. Those of you who remember from Chutzla Aretz, come Friday night, one of the highlights of the Friday night service, someone makes Kiddush. Okay, what's the background to that? Because it happens to be that Kiddush has a lot in common with Hanukkah lights, in that if you just go to Shul and then go back home, you cannot be Yotze Kiddush that was made in Shul. Because as we know, the halacha is Ein Kiddush, Ela B'makam Suda. You're only fulfilled the mitzvah of Kiddush in the place where you'll be having your Shabbos Suda. And therefore, <coughs> if your Shabbos Suda will be at home, then the Kiddush that's made in Shul will not help you. And the Gemara itself raises this question, to which it answers that it is for the benefit of those who lived in Shul. Those poor people who lived in Shul, they would eat in Shul, and therefore, again, Shul or adjacent to the Shul. So for them, the Kiddush in Shul was B'mokam Suda, and that is why in the times of the Gemara, they used to make Kiddush in Shul to be motzi those who, who really could fulfill the mitzvah in that way. However, already in the time of the Rishonim, we find the discussion that people are no longer living in Shul. Which then begs the question, what about making Kiddush in Shul? Should one continue to do so, or should one not? And opinions are divided among the Rishonim. And the Beis Yosef <coughs> sums it up in the following way. Beis Yosef says, the Minag has already become widespread, that people continue to make Kiddush in Shul, even though no one is, is uh, subsequently or in our times fulfilling the mitzvah of Kiddush. Nonetheless, the minag, the widespread minag, is to persist. However, he adds, in Eretz Yisrael, the minag is not to make Kiddush. And, and the Beis Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Cairo, living in Israel, adds his own uh, personal uh, concluding words, v'hu hanachon. That is more correct. And this is the basis of the difference between the minhagim of Eretz Yisrael and Chutz Laaretz. In Chutz Laaretz, the minna continues to make Kiddush in Shul, whereas uh, in Eretz Yisrael, as we know, I, I doubt if there's any communities here in Israel that make uh, Kiddush in Shul. <coughs> but the point is the same. It used to be for people to fulfill the mitzvah when they lived in Shul. Now that they no longer do so, it is purely a matter of keeping on the minhag. But if that is the case, then our question of lighting, getting back to Hanukkah lights in Shul will return. Because the Shulchan Aruch endorses the Minhag. It, it is a universal Minhag. Svardim, Ashkenazim, Eretz Yisrael, Chutzla Aretz. <coughs> in all communities, they light the menorah in Shul. But the question is, the Beis Yosef, who feels that you should no longer make Kiddush in Shul because people don't live there, why then do we persist in lighting the menorah in Shul when people no longer live there? So the, this minak is in, in, is in limbo a little bit. And that is why there are others who present a different way of understanding this minhag of lighting the menorah in Shul. As we know, 
Ideally speaking, and this again is from the Gemara, ideally speaking, the place where the menorah should be lit is Al Pesach Habayis, by the doorway to the house, either by uh, the doorway to the courtyard, the doorway to the house. For those who live on higher floors, there's room to say by the window that others would see. <coughs> but ideally, it should be by the doorway to the house, as many people to be able to see as possible. The Gemara then adds, Ubishas hasakana, in a time of danger, however danger is defined, but in a time of danger, a person likes the menorah inside, in the words of the Gemara, Manicho al shuchano vidayo. You put it on your table and no one else sees, and that is acceptable for a time of Sakana. Uh, as the generations and centuries went by, it became very widespread in Chutzla'aretz to consider themselves to be within the bracket of Shasa Sakana, whatever the danger was, anything from being targeted as very visibly a Jewish household, or whatever else it may be. And this then became the minag, shall we say, in Chutzla Aretz, to light the menorah inside. So in Eretz Yisrael, the menorah should be lit outside, ideally everywhere, but in Chutzla Aretz it became very widespread to light inside. I must say, whenever I uh, talk about this topic, I recall a conversation that I had one night uh, a number of years ago when I was uh, lighting the menorah outside, our apartment at that time was not visible to anyone. It was very clear that I had to lie outside. I left the children up and then we lit inside for the children, but, but I lit outside. And as I was lighting, so I was met by um, a, 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 uh, it's hard to know how to define him, a gentleman who certainly held himself to be wise uh, and had much confidence uh, in everything that he said. So he, he, he confronts me. Here I am innocently lighting my menorah. And he says, uh, like, what are you doing and where's your family? So I said, well, I'm lighting out here and then I'll go up and light with the, the children will light uh, up there. He said, on what basis are you doing that? He was, found my practices to be very interesting. <coughs> on what basis are you doing that? Uh, Hanukkah is a family chag. The whole thing should be done inside. So what is your basis for lighting outside? So I said to him, my basis is the Shulchan Aruch which normally is the end of the conversation. But he said that that ruling of the Shulchan Aruch to light outside, that's a ruling for Golos. That's for the Galut to light outside. But now that we're all back home in the land of Israel, everyone should light inside. I remain amazed to this day how so much ignorance could be compacted into so few words. All stated though it was with his trademark confidence, because the exact opposite is the true is 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 the situation. It's specifically in Golas that the lighting is inside. Ideally, back in Eretzisol, <coughs> the lighting should be outside. However, I did not pursue the matter at the time. Um, but this is the situation, and therefore, one of the late Rishonim, the Rivosh, Rabbeinu Yitzchak Bar Sheshet, who was uh, again one of the late Rishonim. He then explains, if you don't light the menorah outside, what are you missing? You're missing Pirsume Nisa. You, you cannot publicize it, not to the public. I mean, no one else sees it. <coughs> so in Chutzla Aretz, what's missing is Pirsume Nisa. And therefore, in order to supplement 
or to compensate the element of persume nisa, we have another lighting in shul where everyone is there. So what's amazing about this minhag is that it shaves off almost the element of persume nisa, which is which cannot be fulfilled through your actual lighting and gives it a separate forum for fulfillment, namely in shul. And again, it becomes then a universal custom. In fact, the Vilnagon, <coughs> by way of uh, parallel, draws our attention to another minak which has the same goal and all agree is fulfilled with a blessing. And that is the minak of saying Hallel on Seder night, in Shul. That is to say, the inception of this minak, the actual minak of say, uh, pardon me, the mitzvah, of Hallel on Seder night actually takes place at the Seder table. However, of course, at the Seder table, however many people there are, but it's not that public. And therefore, the, the Rishonim cite the custom that before everyone leaves Shul for their Seder, they say Hallel together in Shul with a bracha. <clears throat> and here too, the purpose and that which is being fulfilled is Pirsumi Nisa, says the Vilna Gaon. So you have these two minhagim, one on Seder night and one on Hanukkah, and both are dedicated to publicizing whatever they're publicizing. For Hanukkah, it's Hanukkah. For Seder night, it's, it's Yetzirah Mitzrayim. But the result is it's such a powerful thing that even though they are not mitzvahs, nonetheless, they are accompanied with a bracha asher kiddushonu b'mitzvosu v'tzivanu, ladignesho Hanukkah, and Likro Eshahalal. And this is true even though Sfardim uh, traditionally are more reticent about making uh, brachas on Minhagim. Halal on Rosh for example, Sfard, which is a Minhag. Sfardim do not make a bracha, Ashkenazim do. But when it comes to these two Minhagim, all agree. Hakol Shavim, that uh, they are performed with a bracha. So these are the two elements discussed in the Rishonim. Once again, the idea of originally it was for the mitzvah for those who lived in shul and we carry on the minhag just like we carry on uh, kiddush on friday night as as a pure minhag and the second is in order to fulfill the element of persume nisa which uh, does not exist in uh, at least in chutzla arts although in israel if everyone is lighting outside uh, th- there's room to wonder why nonetheless they all light again in the Ensure with the bracha, but of course, as we said, they do. There is a final element to this minug of lighting in Shul, and that is, <coughs> it's mentioned by the Kolbo, Kolbo is one of the Rishonim, namely, Zecher Lemigdash. It is a minhag purely for Zecher Lemigdash. And what do we mean by that? A remembrance of how things were in the Beis HaMikdash. And what's the point? The the uh, original menorah, of course, is in the Beis HaMikdash. Now, we fulfill the mitzvah at home, and you can only fulfill the mitzvah at home. But there's one thing that the shul has that the home doesn't have, not the fulfillment of the mitzvah, but the zecher Mikdash aspect, because the shul is a mikdash ma'at. And therefore, just like the actual menorah was lit in the Beis HaMikdash, so too we have a special lighting in the shul. Now, what's interesting is <coughs> this then generates two additional uh, sub-discussions, the lighting in Shul as Zecher Mikdash. The first 
<clears throat> is how to position the menorah. Uh, many shuls have a menorah as a permanent fixture in the shul to be used on Hanukkah. The question is, is there any uh, specification as to how it should be positioned? Well, presumably we should take our cue from the way that the menorah was positioned in the Beis HaMikdash. How was the menorah positioned in the Beis HaMikdash? Was it positioned east to west? Was it positioned north to south? <coughs> How was it aligned? So, interestingly, the answer is, it's a machlokas. A machlokas tanoim, in fact, between Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and one of his colleagues, Rabbi Yehuda ben Shimon. One of them says, in the Beis HaMikdash, it's an interesting machlokas. For us, it's purely historical. How was it in the Beis HaMikdash? We don't know. How will it be? We'll probably ask. But uh, it's of practical relevance because the shul, which is meant to uh, mirror how things were done, find out how it was done there. That's, and that's what your, your menorah should look like in your shul. So interestingly, <coughs> the final psak on that question is not resolved. And there are some opinions who say south to north it should be aligned, and others east to west. And therefore, the good news is you couldn't possibly get it wrong, because there's only two possibilities, and each one is backed by a very august uh, rabbinic authority, either Rabbi Huda Nasi or Rabbi Lazar Rabbi Shimon, but, but people do take a, a policy on this, and the reason why is because, don't forget, the lighting in Shul is Zeichel Lamigdash. Position your menorah as it was in the Beis HaMikdash. So that's an, it's interesting because in, at home, there is no such insistence. I don't think there's, there's any halachas or any, uh, anyone in particular that the menorah at home should be east to west or, or north to south. So, so interestingly, it's only this additional lighting, which is much more for the sake of Zechel and Migdash, which then has these uh, aspects or more prominent in it, how exactly to position the menorah. <coughs> and there is a second thing, and this is very interesting. The minute of lighting the menorah in shul, actually, not only does it parallel the lighting at home, it actually exceeds the lighting at home. What do I mean by that? Menorah is lit in shul, not only in the evening, but also in the morning. That's very interesting, right? The, the, the shul, it lights in the evening with a bracha, in the morning without a, without a bracha, but the menorah is lit. Where does that come from? There is no mitzvah at all to light the menorah at home <coughs> in the morning. So why is it lit in shul in the morning? Says Rav Shlomo HaKohen of Vilna, one of the greats of the 1800s, in the Tshuvas Binyan Shlomo, because once we understand that unlike the mitzvah of lighting at home, when you light in shul, it's zecher lemikdash, so we need to be mindful of a very interesting opinion of the Rambam. The Rambam holds that in the Beis HaMikdash, the menorah was lit in the night and in the morning. Almost all Rishonim dispute the opinion of Rambam, but nonetheless, the Rambam is there, <coughs> and the Binyan Shlomo is of the opinion that our lighting without a bracha in the morning in Shul is a nod to the Rambam, t- factoring in the opinion of the Rambam, who says that the, the, the menorah was lit in the morning, so we too. So, so it's very interesting. We see that in some respects, of course, the minog in summation. In some respects, the minog of lighting in shul, of course, is much less than the lighting at home, because it's a minog, lighting at home is the mitzvah. In other respects, it's the same. 
<coughs> we say it's the same in the sense that all of the requirements of lighting at home are required for shul as well. That's very important. Once you make a bracha, asher kedeshan on your lighting in shul, so it will require everything that the mitzvah requires, because you just made a bracha of a mitzvah on it. And that means even if we say that it's primarily for presuming Nisa to publicize, and there's many different ways to publicize the miracle, but you want, we would insist that the format that it's done is the way that you would fulfill the mitzvah. And what does that mean practically? What about using an electric menorah in shul? Now, when it comes to electric menorah, we're not going to go into all the ins and outs and <clears throat> the various parts of the discussion. It's, it's divided into six separate sub-discussions. But suffice it to say that many people, most people, in fact, have major reservations about using an electric menorah for your, for your mitzvah of Hanukkah. Is it lahadlik? Is it ner? Etc. and so forth. But there might have been room to say that perhaps for shul, since the primary value and goal that's being fulfilled in shul is not the mitzvah, but the persume nisa, so if it looks like a menorah, so an electric menorah could have served the function of being mefarsim, no less than, than, than wicks and oil. However, since, again, since we make the bracha, and it is zecher lemikdash, therefore, if a person would not use an electric menorah at home, you, you would not use an electric menorah in shul as well. So, therefore, it parallels, uh, the lighting in shul parallels the lighting at home, <coughs> and, and in some respects, even supersedes, as we said, the lighting at home in terms of the specifications of how the menorah should be set up, and indeed, the additional lighting in the morning, which does not exist in home, at home, at all. So these are some of the, dare I say it, highlights of the discussion of um, the minog of lighting in shul. And uh, with that in mind, let us come to discuss some of the uh, themes and ideas of the, the days of Hanukkah, which are, which are approaching. We borrow the phrase, only a few learning days left until uh, Hanukkah. So um, let us talk about one or two matters. We know <coughs> that... Hanukkah historically is framed against the backdrop of the four major exiles that the Jewish people have and are enduring. It is the third of four. The first, as we know, is the Gullus of Babylon after the first base of English was destroyed, which then morphed in the end of those, towards the end of those 70 years into the Gullus of Persia, which is when the Purim story happened. The third Gullus which is uh, when the story of Hanukkah took place, <coughs> is the Golos of Greece, Golos Yavon. And it's, very, it's a very unusual Golos, if one may use the term, because we were not exiled from our land. We were exiled in our land. That itself is a major uh, concept, that it's possible to be at home in exile. Clearly, it's much more of a conceptual exile, uh, not as in charge as we as we'd like to be, or the things that should be in charge are not are 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 not so. Things are being dictated dictated from somewhere else. That's the third Gaulus, and of course the fourth is Rome with the destruction of the second base of Migdash. Rome and its affiliates, which continues until our time, um, generally. There are a number of places in the Torah where there are allusions to the four exiles. And the earliest place is practically as early as one can get. It is in Bratius, Perik Aleph, Pasuk Beis, literally the second Pasuk. 
No sooner has the world been uh, created than, uh, than the Jewish people are already in exile. <coughs> All of them. But really what that means is that each exile, it represents a, a corruption or a corrosion of how life should be until Hashem's truth reigns in, which is the state of the world as described in that second verse. V'ha'aretz, we know the, the, the Pasuk, V'ha'aretz, ha'isatohu, v'avohu, it was, it was empty, it was desolate, v'choshech, there was darkness, al-penei tohom, on the, the face of the depth. And the Medrash Bracious Rabbah, citing Reish Lakish, Rabbi Shimon Ben Lakish, <coughs> associates and parallels the four exiles of the Jewish people with those four terms, just to match them up. And then obviously we will zone in on number three. But Tohu, which is the first term, is parallels the Golas of Bavel. And interestingly, there is a Pasuk in, uh, in Yirmiyahu describing Bavel, which says, Ra'isi es ha'aretz v'hine Tohu. I have seen Babel, it is tohu, it, it, is, it is empty. The second term is vavohu, which corresponds to the second golos of Persia, Persia and Media, Parasumadai, the Purim story. The third is choshech, darkness, which corresponds to Yavon, which of course we'll get back to. And the fourth is alpineta home, over the, <coughs> over the face of the depth which is the goddess of Rome, which is an unfathomable depth. One cannot at the outset see when it will end. And then the subsequent, the conclusion of the Pasuk, V'ruach Elokim Merechefes Apanei Amayim, Hashem's spirit hovers over the water, represents the, the redemption from all of that and, uh, and giving truth and meaning to all of those um, ideas. Obviously, we go back to number three. And number three is V'choshech, darkness, al-penei And what's especially interesting about this designation of Greece as darkness is that it appears, unlike the other three, it appears to be completely nondescript or nondistinct, more correctly. By which we mean, whatever tohu means, it's very specific. The same for vohu and the same for tohom. They are very singular phrases. Choshech, on the other hand, <coughs> darkness, is something which we know from so many places is true and applicable to every goddess. There is a general notion that darkness and light correspond to exile and redemption. In which case, if you, if you choose the term darkness to define one of the exiles specifically, it's, it raises a question because it's a very general description. So why would it be particularly dark here? If every goddess is dark, how is this, wherefore is this darkness different than all other darknesses? I mean, that's, that's what we need to find out about uh, Hanukkah. And a very uh, meaningful <coughs> answer to this question is discussed by one of the uh, contemporary Tamid uh, Chachamim of Yerushalayim, Rav Uri Yungres is his name. Uh, I have the schuss of being a neighbor of his, and he is a, a fountain of uh, very wonderful ideas. And he actually draws our attention in terms of getting direction. Why is Greece darkness specifically? He turns our, our attention to a comment of the Vilna Gaon in his Perush to the Pesach Haggadah. 
Okay. How does it come to be in the Pesach Haggadah? We, we don't necessarily need to, uh, to see its source there uh, within the Haggadah. But the Vilna Gon focuses on a Pesach in Koheles. Koheles, as we know, <coughs> very difficult. Each verse of Koheles is, is, is difficult. Certainly the whole thing put together is uh, extremely so. But uh, each, each statement of Koheles requires its own examination and its own deliberation. In Perig Bays of Koheles... He says as follows, <coughs> And I have seen the advantage of wisdom over folly, sichlus with a samach. The wisdom or the advantage of wisdom over folly is It's like the advantage of light over darkness. So here is Shlomo HaMelech in Koheles comparing the relative, or more than relative, but the, the advantage of wisdom over folly to light over darkness. What is the meaning behind that parallel? What is the meaning behind that correspondence? We, of course, could advance our own understandings on a basic level. Light is illumination and darkness is the lack thereof. So too, folly is the lack of, of wisdom. <coughs> but the Vilna Gaon says says more. If you wish to understand why wisdom is associated with light and folly is associated with darkness, you need to go back to the earliest reference to light and darkness in the verse. And where will you find it? Once again, in the opening chapter of Beratius. And what does it say there? Vayikra Elohim laor yom Karalaila. Hashem called light day and he called darkness night. The Medrash has a well known comment on that verse. Namely, Hashem's name only appears in that verse in connection with light. Vayikra Elohim Laorium, an explicit reference to Hashem's name in that verse is only with regards to light and day. Vayikra Elohim Laorium. In contrast, Valachoshech Kora Laila, the pronoun is used, he, and of course he refers to Hashem, <coughs> but it doesn't use Hashem's name explicitly. And this is the basis of the Medrash, which says that Hashem does not associate himself with things related to darkness. Of course, that's a delicate statement, meaning everything ultimately emanates from Hashem. But the direct association is with matters of light and of goodness. And there's only an indirect association because they're not primary as the, as the purpose or as the desired goal to have darkness and evil in the world. They ultimately form part of what what happens in the world. But Hashem attaches his name. He signs his name off on what it's all about, which is Orya. Interestingly, and before we move back to what the Vilna Gaon is saying, there is room to point out, just from a Parshanut point of view, and with that will be Yotze Yidei Ar Parshanut for the evening, that the Medrash is saying, Hashem's name is only appears in the beginning. In the second half of the Pasuk, his name doesn't, doesn't appear. That's standard. You'll only ever have the proper noun in the beginning of the verse. And from that point onwards, it's pronouns. 
So why is the Medrash seemingly making something of this that you see? It says Elohim with regards to light, but it doesn't say Elohim with regards to Choshech. Of course it doesn't. No Pasuk does. Once you've mentioned Hashem at the beginning of the Pasuk, we then move to pronouns. To he. So what is the point of the Medrash? Says Rabbi Shuleib Diskin, a wonderful uh, insight. The point of the Medrash is it's true. You only ever mention Hashem's name or the name of the, of the noun in the beginning of the verse. The point of the Medrash is, the beginning of the verse should have been talking about darkness, not about light, for the simple reason that darkness was created before light. No sooner has the world been created, <coughs> we already have darkness. Verse 2, It's not until the next verse that it says, Which means that historically, darkness preceded light. If that's the case, that when the Pasuk then tells us the names that Hashem attached to them, it should have presented them Al Rishon Rishon. First darkness, then light. But it didn't. It inverted them. It put light before darkness. Why? Because whatever is mentioned first will have Hashem's name, name mentioned explicitly with regards to it. And, and Hashem doesn't want his name to be mentioned explicitly with regards to darkness. And therefore, darkness and light were flipped. It's light that's mentioned at the beginning together with the name Elohim. And darkness gets the pronoun. What does this have to do with us? Says the Vilna Gaon, to recall where we are. When Kohela says that the advantage of wisdom over folly is like the advantage of light over darkness, what he means is in the same way that the advantage of light over darkness is that Hashem's name is attached to light and not to darkness, so too the the advantage of wisdom over folly is that when it is connected to Hashem, that is called wisdom. And when it's disconnected from Hashem, that is called folly. In other words, what Shlomo is saying is, just like of those two, only light is associated with Hashem, not darkness. Wisdom is called wisdom because it's associated with Hashem. And if it's, de- if it's disassociated, if it's detached, so then that is called folly. And the question is why? After all, seemingly, wisdom is wisdom. What difference does it make? Obviously, on, in religious grounds, it's important. <clears throat> what difference does it make on wisdom grounds, whether it's attached to Hashem? But the answer is twofold. Right? And both of them are, are equally uh, important and compelling points. Firstly, wisdom that's detached from, Hashem, detached from Hashem is entirely self-reliant. The notion is that the answer to every single meaningful question in in about the world around me will come, will be generated and fathomed from my intellect alone because that is all that I'm relying. I'm not relying on any revealed truth uh, from above, only that which is fathomed from within. But that is belying and that is ignoring the the limitations of the human intellect. It cannot fathom the full meaning of all of these questions. (coughs) And therefore... The most one can hope for is a portion of the truth. But to take a portion of the truth and to present that as the totality of the truth is a misrepresentation. And a misrepresentation is a distortion. And distortion is the opposite of wisdom. 
So that's the first question. How much can a person, that's a famous philosophical question, what can one hope for? And in terms of intellect, what can one hope to, to work out with one's intellect? So if you rely on intellect alone, the answer must be everything. But that's not realistic. And there's folly in there. The second point is what does one hope to, to do with one's wisdom? After you've understood things, where will that take you? And here too, <coughs> wisdom that's attached to Hashem. So as you attain wisdom, it's in the interest of, of establishing and developing and furthering that your connection with Hashem, which is, which is the ultimate goal of existence. But if your wisdom is detached, then the attainment of wisdom stops there. It becomes an end in itself, not a means to a higher end. It becomes the highest end. But that is capping. That's putting a roof on what wisdom can do for a person and once again, ultimately not doing, not even fulfilling the full potential of what wisdom can do for a person. For all these reasons, the, the, the exile of Greece is referred to as Choshech. It's called darkness because it is wisdom detached from Hashem, entirely self-reliant, and it has all the shortcomings of darkness. And this now becomes a very vexed issue between Greece, when we say Greece, we mean Hellenistic Greece, uh, and, and Torah. No one values wisdom more than the Jewish people. But to what end? And it's not for nothing <clears throat> that the symbol of the struggle is localized in the entity which is called the menorah. The menorah has seven branches. As many Mepharshim say, that, rep that refers to the seven branches of wisdom. And yet, two things are true of the menorah, which make the menorah not the most beloved symbol for Greece. The first thing is that the center branch is Torah, and other forms of wisdom are to the side. And secondly, as we know, they all, the wicks all face inwards towards the middle branch. That is a statement about the full meaning of what wisdom is. That is, that is uh, what the menorah tells us. And of course, it now becomes a, a massive point of contention between Israel and Greece. And this will give us further insight into, into one of the, the forerunners of the oppression of Greece. Formerly, it was not an act of oppression at all. We refer <coughs> to the translation of the Torah into Greek, which was done under the auspices of uh, King Ptolemy II, much earlier than the Hanukkah story, generations earlier, in fact. As we know, um, Israel, then and now, was a hotly contested uh, territory for the Greek Empire. It kept on switching hands between the northern Syrian Greece and the southern Egyptian Greece. We never actually had direct dealings with, with, Greek, with Greek Greeks at all, but we had their associative uh, Syrian Greeks and Egyptian Greeks, and, and they kept on wrestling it back and forth. One of the times that we were uh, under the auspices of Ptolemy, who was an Egyptian Greek uh, emperor, he decreed, <coughs> he gathered the famous uh, scholars into, the, into those uh, chambers and had them translate the Torah into Greek, what became subsequently known as the Septuaginta. And this was considered to be a terrible episode. 
So much so that the, the Shulchan Aruch even records there was a fast day on the 8th of Tebes. And we're, 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 I wouldn't say we're happy with the fast days that we had, we're, but, we, but we are full from the fast days that we have. But there are additional ones in the Shulchan Aruch, and some people would fast on the 8th of Tebes because that's the day that the Torah was translated into Greek. And we have to ponder this because on the face of it, uh, you know, what is the problem? If we ask a, a simple question. And in fact, not only is it a simple question, there's more to it than that. The Torah itself mandates that the Torah should be translated into every available language. That's what we're told in Parshas Kisava, when the Jewish people came across the Jordan, they came into the land of Israel, they were told to write the Torah on those stones in what's called Be'er Hetev, which Chazal themselves say, Beshivim Noshen, in all 70 languages. <coughs> Leaving aside how exactly they did that and, and, and who translated, uh, who, who was proficient in all of those languages, we assume they, they had all that taken care of. But the point f- for our purposes is it's a mitzvah to translate the Torah into all those languages, including, including presumably Greek or, or some uh, associated language with Greek. So the Torah wants it to happen, but when it finally happened, it was considered a, a very tragic day. Why? The answer lies in what is the motivation of translating the Torah into another language, in this instance, Greek. In other words, <coughs> the Torah says many or all the nations of the world have something to learn from the Torah, so translate it into their language for purposes of informing them. But Greece did not want to translate the Torah into Greek for purposes of information. They wanted it translated into Greek for purposes of evaluation. In other words, the launch of the idea is Greek wisdom is holding sway. All other forms of wisdom then need to be translated under its auspices. They were not translating the Torah as seekers of Torah truth. They were translating the Torah as arbiters of Torah truth. And what that means is the prevailing wisdom undoubtedly is Greek wisdom. Anything that's translated that fits in with that, all well and good. Anything that doesn't fit in with that needs to be brought into line. And if it can't, it needs to be discarded. So when you come to judge and not to learn... That's a dark day. That's, that's not what the Torah is talking about when it says translate into other languages. Because we, the, the, the Greek wisdom has a hold on the translation. <coughs> Under those circumstances, the translation of the Torah into Greek is nothing less than the translation of Judaism into Hellenism. Because it now becomes a vassal Greek text. And moreover, <coughs> in the fullness of time, as we get closer to the Hanukkah story itself, we know that Antiochus, the fourth, that is to say Antiochus of the Hanukkah story, he declared learning and teaching Torah illegal on pain of death. That's very different seemingly than what his predecessor from the other empire did. Ptolemy said it should be translated, the Torah into Greek. It sounds like he wants to learn. Antiochus says no one can learn. It sounds like a reversal of policy, but it isn't. Because what Ptolemy is saying is the Torah needs to be formatted into Greek ideas. But to be learned in its original, not beholden to Greek, that's something that's forbidden. And that's what Antiochus was, was forbidding. 
so this gives us, and again, bayamim haheim basman It is not hard uh, to see these trends and these ideas and these attitudes in some respects as prevalent today in one, in, you know, in their various forms as they originally as they originally were. And interestingly, as we go back in time, back in history, and perhaps even to prehistory, our initial association, or initial encounter, shall we say, with Greece, it took place in a sense before um, Greece itself was an empire. But on a root level, where do we find the first coming together, shall we say, of Israel and Greece. It's in Parshas Noah. And interestingly, in that episode, they were partners, seemingly with a shared vision. To what do we refer? You have that uh, episode of uh, Noah, and he, and he drinks, and he's lying exposed in his tent. What happens? So Ham thinks it's, it's a big joke, and that's the mildest of the interpretations there. He's not interested in, in taking any uh, um, reparative action. But Shem and Yefes do. That's very interesting. What do they do? Something needs to be done. Father is lying uh, exposed, unclothed. They need to do so. And what do they do? They protect his dignity. They cover him over. They don't look. And it's very interesting because on the one hand of the sheet, on the one side, you have shame, the progenitor of the Jewish people. On the other hand, you have Yefes, the progenitor of Greece. Yavon was one of Yefes's sons, <coughs> as, as, as described there in Parshas Noah. So that's interesting. When we first meet Yavon, we're together with them. But it is a highly qualified togetherness. By which we mean, even as Shem and Yefes were together, they were not the same. How do we see this? The Pasuk itself, which describes them taking the sheet and covering Noah over, says, Vayikach Shem Vayefes Esasimla. Vayikach is in the singular. But as we know, of course, Shem and Yefes, two people, it should have said, Vayikhu Shem Vayefes Esasimla. Rashi comments, from Chazal. The reason why it says Vayikach in the singular is because they both took the sheet. But one of them took it more. Shem took the initiative. From a certain point of view, it was only Shem. And that's why it uses the singular, even though you know, clearly the Pasuk that goes on to say that Yefes was involved as well, but he wasn't involved to the same degree and ultimately he wasn't even involved in the same enterprise. Why? <clears throat> because Shem and Yefes saw a different problem here. Yefes, again, representing the beginnings of, of, Ro, uh, me, of Greece, um, so, so for him, human dignity is an important thing. And of course, if their father is lying in a state of disgrace, it's an affront to human dignity, that may well be. For Shem, there is that, of course, that is a basic concept. It is an important concept, but it is not the whole story. There's other issues. There's Kibud Av. There's Tselem Elohim. There are higher elements that are at stake here, which speak to shame, which do not speak to Yefes. And in that respect, even as they're together, they're not the same. It's the same sheet, but it's covering different things uh, for each of them. And by the way, we can see this very interestingly. Rashi goes on to say that each of them got their reward. Shem got his, Shem's descendants 
got a reward for this act, and Yephes's descendants got a reward. What was the reward? Says Rashi, Shem's reward is that his descendants received talis shal mitzvah. He covered him with a sheet, and they then received talis shal mitzvah wrapped up in, in a talis. Yefes, what's Yefes's reward? Says Rashi, in the future, in the war of Gogu Magog, many of whom are descendants of Yefes, those who fall will be buried, as opposed to lying unburied. It's an amazing Rashi. I mean, one cannot help but notice what seems to be quite a, quite a gulf between first prize and second prize. In other words, uh, Shem, what does he get? Talish HaMitzvah, very nice. And what does Yefes get for his, for his efforts? His descendants will receive a, a, a burial when they fall on the battlefield. I mean, don't, don't we have another Talis? <coughs> How can they receive such different rewards for the same act? But says the Nitziv, this in the Hamikdavah, this highlights the, the, the idea that they were not the same act. I mean, physically it was, but ideologically they were involved in something else entirely. For Shem, he's involved in a mitzvah. With all that a mitzvah represents, it's, it's, it has physical um, application, but it's expressing something much higher. And that's why, because he was involved in a mitzvah, and him alone, vayikach, in the singular, so that's why, if his involvement was in a mitzvah, his reward is a mitzvah. Of a garment, of course, right? As a sheep, uh, he, he gets wrapped up in the talus of mitzvah. But since for, for Yefes, the issue at stake was not a matter of mitzvah or man's godly image or anything like that. It was purely a matter of human dignity, which is, again, not to be discounted. It is a basic value. But if that's what's motivating him, then his reward comes in that, way, in that form as well, that his descendants will be afforded the basic dignity of a burial uh, on the battlefield, not to, not to lie unburied. <coughs> so this is fascinating, because we, it, it is cl- clearly the very first time that Israel meets Greece. They're officially, in a sense, partners, and yet there's so much that divides them. And that remains true of Israel and Greece. They, have so, they value so much of the same things. What divides them is not what they value, but why. They both value wisdom, but why and to what end? They both value beauty, but why and to what end? Once again, it's, the, it's an end in itself. Beauty is an integral part of the mitzvah of Hanukkah for this reason. Hidur mitzvah is written into the mitzvah on, on, on all levels for this very idea that the, the, the point is not to reject Greece in the sense of rejecting uh, beauty, but rather to reject their notion that it's an end unto itself. Rather, it's a platform for something higher. What better than to use it literally as a platform upon which to put the, <coughs> the Hanukkah lights which celebrate this idea. And there is, in this regard, uh, a fascinating medrash, which, which takes us a few generations later to the struggle between, Yo- between Yaakov and the angel, last week's parsha, Vayeovik Ish Imo. Very enigmatic. Imagine learning those verses with no background whatsoever, with no Masorah and no outside information. You don't know who this Ish is, what his problem is, what they were fighting about, and it's a riddle from beginning, middle, and end. (coughs) But as we know, this Ish is none other than Sorosh al-Esav, and Esav, of course, is the host to all of the 
is a clearinghouse almost for all of the ideologies of, of the goddesses, including Yavan. And it's an ideological struggle. What do we know about the struggle? Only why Yaakov was left was, was alone. That's how it begins. Yaakov was left alone. Why was he alone? He went back. He went back for the famous Pachim Ketanim, these small jars. He transferred almost everything, but, but, the, but these were still uh, to be transferred, and therefore he went back for Pachim Ketanim. That's all we know. It is the only background we have. Next thing we know, he's fighting with someone. What's the connection between these two things? Because the fight was about those pachim ketanim. In going back for those small jars, and what, is the, and what does the Medrash say, by the way? The Medrash says <coughs> um, that the pach shemen, the famous jar of oil, with pure oil that the Hashmonaim found, was one of those pachim that Yaakov went back for. That's an amazing comment. That's got to be the best yichus any jar of oil ever had. It features both as something that Yaakov went back for. It's the jar of oil that, uh, that they found. But, but what is the underlying meaning for us? Uh, it's not just a matter of, uh, of product placement. What is the, what, what's the concept here? <clears throat> Yaakov goes back for those small jars because he values them. And the reason why he values them is because he values everything that he has. Because if he has it, he has it for a higher purpose. All of his possessions are valued by him as serving a higher purpose. As we can appreciate, other people would also value those jars. Not as serving a higher purpose, but just because they value things. It is a classic case of two people potentially valuing exactly the same thing for completely different reasons. And that means that the fight with this angel was about those Pachim Ketanim. Namely, Yaakov, he comes back. Who does he meet? This angel. What are you doing here? I came back for these jars. Why? Well, I value them. Oh, so would I. So we're the same. And then the struggle begins. And what is the struggle ideologically? It's for Yaakov to maintain, to stay firm on, on his position that he, everything he values is not for itself, as an end in itself, but rather as a means to a higher end. The struggle itself is called Vayeovik, Vayeovik ish ima, which some relate to Avak as we know, but others relate to the word Vayechabik, those guttural letters, the Aleph and the Chet, are interchangeable. Lechabek is to, is to embrace. And this the Ramban says, <coughs> because when people uh, wrestle with each other, it's kind of like an embrace. It's not an embrace of friendship. It's an embrace where they're trying to, to, to snuff the life out of the other person. But it is an embrace. But what does that mean for us? It means that when two people are locked in a, in a wrestling struggle, it's sometimes hard to know where one person ends and the other person starts. In fact, it's for this reason that a multi-wicked candle, which we use for Abdullah, is called an avuka. 
like Vayeavik, because all the wicks are intertwined. If they're all the same color, hard to know. If you're not paying attention where, where one, which one, how did it start, what did it become, it all becomes one thing. And that's the struggle between Yaakov and this angel, to all become one thing. He's looking to, he's looking to, to hug him to death. <clears throat> As if to say, the more he embraces Yaakov, the more similar they are to each other, the more you'll no longer be able to tell where Esau's angel ends and Yaakov begins, and, and Yaakov's job is to make sure that that does not happen. As much as we have so much in common on us to a certain degree, we are fundamentally divided beyond that point, and that is all decisive. And Yaakov's fight, therefore, is to maintain his perspective why he values the things in this world, and to be sure that they never comes just to have this short-sighted vision of valuing them for themselves. And now we can understand why the Medra says that the Pach Shemen, that they found in the Beis HaMikdash was one of those jars that Yaakov went back for. Whether it means literally the same jar, that we don't know. But what it means conceptually is that the very thing that the Hashmonai went to war over, right, to, to maintain that purity, was the very struggle that Yaakov had. And he was their inspiration and, and, uh, and their assistance in, in all the ways that, that Masa Ovos worked. So he really did give them that, uh, that Pach Katan that they found uh, later on. <coughs> and the more we think about it in this May, the, the, more, the more we realize that Hanukkah is different than, many, than, than, than the other Chagim in the sense that the other Chagim, one could say, they celebrate past events, struggles that we had that, that were, were concluded. But the struggle with Yavan has not been concluded. Yavan passes its philosophy on to Rome, and Rome is the host of the goddess until further notice. Hanukkah, and what that means is that when we celebrate the victory, and we know, aside from the fact that the wars themselves were far from over at the time of the Hanukkah story, they'd continue for a number of years, but when we celebrate the victory over Yavan, when, uh, that happened all those years ago, what happened all those years ago was not the final victory over, over Greece or Hellenism. It was the formative victory over Greece. But the battle still continues. So the victory needs to happen again on an ongoing basis. In other words, on Hanukkah, when we light the menorah and absorb the ideas of the festival, the goal is not just to recall and reminisce over something that was. It's to recharge and rejuvenate for something that still is. I might even go so far as to say that Hanukkah, as we know, is Milosh and Chinuch, Chinuch is when you start something off with the intention of setting it going. It could continue for a while. What, did, what was the festival of Hanukkah? Mechanich. What did it dedicate? What did it inaugurate? There's room to say, of course, it, it inaugurated the, the Besamikdash again. And, 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 but there's room to say in the broadest possible terms that what the festival of Hanukkah inaugurated was the war against Yavan. It began then. It hasn't ended. And that's why to, to fully connect and reacquaint ourselves with the core themes of Hanukkah. And it's eight days long, which is, which is a good long time. It doesn't impose itself on the totality of the day. Malacha is mutter. We go about the things that we do. But the Hanukkah consciousness is something that we need. Because as long as we're still in the exile of Rome, then the, 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 the angel of uh, Esau is still looking to, to, to hug the life out of us. And therefore, 
with the avoda of, of lighting the menorah for us is no less significant than it was in the Beis Hamikdash itself. And these are things uh, are things that are, are profound concepts that can really uh, give a deeper connection with the days of Hanukkah and Mitzvah Hashem. Our goal, as as the as the years uh, continue, is to keep that that struggle going. Right, Adalo Sashachar, Adalo Sashachar, and Mitzvah Hashem. Every year should be a decisive step, a causative step in the direction where we look to finish what we started. Azegmor b'Shem Azmor Hanukkah which should happen b'Karov b'Yamin. Wish you all a happy Hanukkah and uh, a wonderful week ahead. Again, just to mention, we will meet again next in two weeks' time for, for the Monday of Parshas Vayigash. All the very best.